Evening, everybody. Um, so if you haven't been here uh, recently, uh, we are in the middle of a sermon series going through 1 Corinthians. And uh, <clears throat> last week we had the famous passage of 1 Corinthians 13, love uh, is a good thing. Uh, <clears throat> and this week we go into uh, 1 Corinthians 14. And uh, it's a long passage, and I uh, debated about whether to break it up uh, but I decided it's really uh, all about one thing. And so it's a fairly long passage. I'm going to read the whole thing. And uh, I'm not going to be able to really give adequate time to everything that's in there. So we will have Q&A after the service. So if, you, if I didn't talk about something that's in there, then feel free to come and ask me about that uh, after the service. But uh, I hope to hit uh, the main points here. So if you turn to your bulletin, this is on page five. Uh, I'll read this passage at the very end then we have our call and response. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. So hear God's word from uh, the Apostle Paul in the letter to the Corinthians, uh, first letter, uh, chapter 14. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. For the one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Now brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit uh, you, unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching. If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct tones, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? <clears throat> so with yourselves, if, your tongue, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker <clears throat> and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, <clears throat> but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, <clears throat> in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. <clears throat> Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter... <clears throat> will they not say that you are out of your minds? 
But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all and he is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there was no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. For it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command from the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy, but do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, all kinds of stuff in here, right? Um, as I said, I'm not going to uh, probably do it justice, uh, but I'm going to hit uh, just some of the highlights here. The first thing we have to obviously get out of the way and really understand is what is Paul talking about when he's talking about speaking in tongues? Uh, and um, if you have hung around in evangelical circles very long, uh, you probably know that there is a whole segment of the church sometimes called Pentecostal Christianity or Charismatic Christianity in which people have a certain thing they do that they call speaking in tongues. Uh, and um, it's typically uh, something which is completely unintelligible to everybody in the room, including the speaker. Uh, and um, uh, they would say that this is a fulfillment of the Holy Spirit leading them to speak in tongues uh, just like this. So we don't usually do interactive here, but just show of hands. How many people have heard of that happening in the church? Show of hands here. Okay, so most of you have heard of somebody who uh, said they spoke in tongues through the Spirit. Uh, so what I want to first do here is um, try to get us to take a step back uh, and look at this in the context not of 21st century, but of the first century, uh, the context of the Bible itself. Uh, it's uh, really hard for us to do if we've heard a lot of people saying this is what this passage is about, uh, and we, it's very easy to put onto this chapter that kind of template of this is what we're talking about, what those Pentecostals do. Just a little bit of history, um, that kind of speaking in tongues that I was talking about is a very new movement in the church. Uh, it dates back to early 20th century, sometimes called the Azusa Street Revival out in Los Angeles, uh, and so for 19 centuries of the church, it was unknown. Uh, and uh, I went back and read some commentaries. And it's really interesting to read old commentaries, and nobody has anything to talk about these charismatic languages. Um, it's very clear from the context of the New Testament, we're talking about actually speaking foreign languages. 
and the context, I don't know if I put this in the extra uh, scriptures here in the bulletin, uh, I didn't, but um, in Acts chapter 2, we get a very clear picture of what's going on. Uh, it says uh, that when the day of Pentecost arrived, the disciples were all gathered together, and <clears throat> a miraculous wind came from heaven. There was a mighty rushing wind, and it says they were filled with the Holy Spirit <clears throat> and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. <clears throat> and the people who were there, I'm really paraphrasing here, were bewildered uh, because each of them was hearing those people speak in his own tongue. Uh, and that um, they then said, how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? So this was not unintelligible language, it was incredibly intelligible and it was surprisingly intelligible given that the people who were speaking were not considered to be people who would know those languages. Uh, and then th this apparently is something that happened quite often uh, in the early church in a miraculous way. So in Acts chapter 10, uh, it says uh, again, uh, they heard uh, these group of people who had received the gospel speaking in tongues and extolling God. Again, speaking in an intelligible way, extolling God. Uh, and then in Acts 19, it says, Paul laid his hands on them, another group of people, uh, and the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. So we have the same two words, speaking in tongues and prophesying. So we see a real continuity between the book of Acts which says that in that first generation, uh, there was miraculous work of the Holy Spirit by which people were filled with the Spirit and they spoke in foreign languages that were intelligible to people uh, and they prophesied speaking truths uh, in the name of God. Uh, and this was apparently a sign uh, which was, uh, happened in, in quite a few churches. And um, we see the same language here in this chapter. Um, so um, my argument here uh, is that what Paul is talking about is a gift of actually speaking other languages, uh, and it could be either miraculous or actually somebody who had learned uh, a language. Uh, uh, and uh, we might not think of that as a gift. Uh, we're in a culture that pretty much everybody speaks one language, uh, English, uh, but I remember being in churches overseas uh, and having people who spoke other languages and could interpret them was a real gift to the church. Uh, and that was something which uh, in Calvin, in his commentary, he talks about, that actually speaking other languages is a gift of tongues, gift of speaking other languages, both being able to interpret and to speak uh, in those ways. Uh, and so probably this is miraculous. There's uh, things in this passage that make it seem that it's not just people having learned them, uh, but also uh, miraculous speaking uh, in other languages. Uh, but there's a number of things uh, that make us uh, think that also uh, it really is learned languages. For instance, Paul says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Now, what, is he, what would he mean by that? Would he say, well, you know, you guys only spend an hour speaking in tongues, but I spend two hours speaking in tongues. You know, I don't think that's what he's talking about. He's saying he's a learned man. He was an extremely educated scholar in the Hebrew system, and he had studied and learned multiple languages and was fluent in a number of languages. And so as he does in many places, he says, actually, I have more credentials than you do, but I'm not gonna uh, pull rank on you. Uh, and so he's saying, I actually speak all these languages, uh, 
and more than you do, but I'm actually not going to impress you with my ability to speak foreign languages. I'm going to speak in a language that you understand. Um, and so, um, uh, you know, that is uh, one of the evidence. Another one is um, down uh, below in verse uh, 22, it says, tongues are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers. Um, why would Babel, that no one could understand, be a sign? It's very clear from the book of Acts that the sign was that people heard someone talking their language. Uh, and that was like, wow, that's a miracle. Someone's speaking in my language uh, when I'm used to having to learn this marketplace Greek or whatever. Uh, and so uh, it really becomes a non-sign if an unbeliever walks in and hears Babel. You know, uh, and um, Paul actually points that out. He said, if they come in and they don't understand it, it's no sign at all, and they're just going to think you're crazy, right? The sign is if they actually understand it, uh, and it makes sense to them. Uh, so, uh, I would argue then that the main thing that uh, Paul is talking about then is a miraculous gift of actually speaking foreign languages, and the context here. Uh, really that's been going on in this whole middle section of 1 Corinthians, is a church that is somewhat chaotic, uh, a church where um, there's a lot of enthusiasm, but that enthusiasm has gone sort of a wrong turn uh, and become a very chaotic uh, worship service. And so you'll have some people just standing up and bursting out, speaking, interrupting other people, uh, and you'll have... Um, you know, people who are uh, even grabbing the communion food to eat uh, and to drink the communion wine to get drunk, uh, a really chaotic uh, type of environment. And Paul is really rebuking them and saying, as he says here in a couple of places, God is not a God of chaos, uh, but a God of order, and you need to restore order uh, to your worship service. So he's um, uh, really emphasizing uh, the need not to say that we forbid uh, this kind of thing, uh, but that there be order to it uh, and that people speak clearly and if somebody is going to speak in a foreign language that there's somebody who translates uh, for it and they, you don't just have someone uh, going along uh, and bursting out in their foreign language that nobody can understand. Uh, interestingly, I said, you know, if you go back and read commentaries from past centuries, they knew nothing of the modern Pentecostal practice and so you'd say, well, what did they do with this passage? Uh, and one of the applications that Calvin made was that uh, preaching should be in the vernacular, uh, that it should be in a language that people understand, and the service in general uh, should be understandable uh, to the people uh, and not something which is foreign. And I think that actually gets to uh, maybe the motivation for some people to engage in, uh, I'm gonna call it Babel, um, by the way, just as an aside, um, science, language is a thing that can be studied, you know, it's called linguistics, <coughs> uh, and um, there also are people who do code breaking, and to do code breaking, you have to first identify whether there was a message, and so you have ways of analyzing language to find out, even if you don't understand it, whether it was indeed a message or whether it was nonsense. Uh, and they do things like how many times are certain words repeated uh, and how many different types of words are being used and is there enough variety in it to actually convey a message or is it the same thing over and over again? And um, these kind of scientists have actually studied uh, Pentecostal speaking in tongues 
Uh, and you know, you can take it for what it's worth, but they would say that it is intrinsically the same as a two-year-old babbling that is highly repetitive uh, and doesn't, it can't contain a lot of information because it's the same thing over and over. Um, and I think that actually gets to both the core of what was going on in the Middle Ages uh, with uh, the Latin service that nobody understood and also some of um, the, the, the uh, Pentecostal things is that, and, and Jesus addressed this in Matthew 6, he said, do not think by heaping up empty phrases that you will have better access to God. Uh, there's a part of us, I think, that every one of us can relate to that it feels somehow like if I could do something like super just like religious feeling, that would make me feel really close to God. And so uh, instead of actually sort of thinking about these things cognitively, if I just sort of get into a mental state of sort of hearing and repeating and uh, sort of zoning out, for lots of us that can feel more religious. Uh, and so we can... Uh, say, well, if I say this prayer over and over a hundred times, that makes me feel super religious, right? Or if I pray in a private prayer language, as it's sometimes called, for an hour babbling, uh, that makes me feel super religious, and it can make me feel like I've really done something active. Uh, and yet, what Jesus says is, don't heap up empty phrases. Don't think that by heaping up empty words that you don't understand, that you have gotten closer to God. And that's directly from the words of Jesus. And Paul, I think, is really speaking in the same way here. He's saying uh, that uh, it may be that you have a miraculous gift of speaking a foreign language and you don't even know how to translate your own words. Uh, that's great if there's an unbeliever who speaks that language, but if not, then just keep it to yourself uh, and you know, speak in a language that people understand. Um, but at the core of it is, I think, this feeling that we just want to feel really religious by doing something really mantra-like, you know, something really sort of getting in the zone uh, and so on. And you just can't miss in this passage how many times Paul says, uh, use your mind. So, for instance, in um, verse uh, uh, 14 and 15, uh, well, verse 15 in particular, he says, I will pray with my spirit and I will pray with my mind also. <clears throat> uh, I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing praise with my mind also. Now, there are some people in the church who would say, uh, that's like an alternating thing. Like sometimes I'm just in the spirit and my mind is not active, and then other times my mind is active and, and not my spirit. Um, I would agree with Calvin. I don't think that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying, simultaneously, I am in the spirit and using my mind, and not using my mind amounts to what Jesus called heaping up empty phrases uh, in Matthew 6. Uh, and so whether I'm singing or whether I'm uh, doing something in the service, I am in the spirit, but I'm also simultaneously engaging my mind. I'm not turning off my mind at certain points during uh, my worship. Uh, and I think that what's, is what Paul uh, is really getting at here. Uh, now, in contrast to that, Paul is holding up something else uh, which he really uh, emphasizes, uh, and that is what he calls prophesying. So he says over and over, <clears throat> um, you know, if you have a miraculous gift of tongues, you know, that's not forbidden, but there's something much better, which is to prophesy. And I think in, uh, in this, there's sort of a similar way to take this. As I said, with the gift of languages, 
uh, some of it might have been miraculous and some of it might have been learned. Uh, and in the same way, I would say with the gift of prophecy, uh, there seemed to have been, in the first century, people who had revelations from God directly uh, uh, from the Spirit. Uh, but um, multiple times, uh, the, the Bible and the church has talked about simply proclaiming the words of God forthrightly as a type of prophecy. So, um, you know, if we are in the church today and we are proclaiming boldly the words of God, that is a type of prophecy. And you can see that's really the emphasis of Paul here. He's saying the value of prophecy is to build up people, to, to give them truth. So it's not to prove how spiritual you are by saying, I received this revelation, but he's saying the value of the prophecy is as good as, as the value of the message itself. Uh, and so... Um, one of the things that is quite interesting in history is that when you get to second century literature, you know, the Bible uh, written uh, in the first century, uh, the New Testament that is, um, you don't see uh, after the age of the apostles passed away a lot of people saying uh, we're coming up with new revelation, you know, we're coming up with new books of the Bible. You really see a sense of the apostles gave us the final revelation uh, and we're working with that. Uh, and so even though there would have been in the second century people saying, well, uh, answers to prayer for healing uh, or uh, other types of things that they would have called miraculous, um, there's not a lot of people saying we're adding to the canon of Scripture, we're adding authoritative teaching. There really is a sense by the second century that God's word is complete. And so uh, the argument uh, of the church, by and large, uh, since then has been uh, that to speak the words of God forthrightly is to speak the Bible, is to proclaim the Bible and the truth of the Bible. And so there is a sense in which those up front here proclaim the scriptures, uh, and that is a type of prophecy. And there's also a sense in which uh, all of you uh, even in speaking, giving testimonies and so forth, are prophesying. Uh, so one of the things you, you can't miss, and I would say this is an application of this, is that he is saying there's a lot of participation, right? He's saying there's an order to this, but there's also, it's not just a priest up front, right? There is, he's saying one person will share this, uh, and another person will share this, and so on. And um, you hear that in people coming up uh, to pray from the congregation. Uh, and actually, we just were talking in session a few weeks ago about re-emphasizing, encouraging people to give testimonies. Uh, we often have testimonies in our church when people join the church, and then we never hear from them again. And we've been saying, you know, it probably would be good to hear from each other, not just when they join, but other times. So this is just kind of putting this out there be thinking about whether you'd be willing uh, on a Sunday when we don't have new members joining uh, to give you a, a testimony, a three or four minute testimony of what God has been doing in your life. I think that would be very much in the spirit of what Paul is talking about here, that one shares uh, and there is another that shares and so on. Uh, so the spirit of prophecy that Paul is talking about is not merely miraculous, although it seems like there was some miraculous things going on, but He's also saying there are people who are, are speaking with conviction uh, about the Word of God and the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives, uh, and this is good and right, 
uh, that we should uh, edify each other. <coughs> uh, and so uh, that is uh, an application for all of this, uh, that we should um, be willing to speak out uh, and give God glory. <coughs> so I just want to finish up um, with a couple points, really sort of applying this uh, to worship in general. Uh, and I put in the uh, sermon outline here two points. Uh, one is, I call it order and not chaos, uh, and the other is uh, declaring God's truth to our hearts. So uh, <clears throat> order and not chaos, there's a couple phrases in here um, that Presbyterians love, right? Um, so in verse 33, it says, for God is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace. Uh, and in verse 40, uh, let all things be done decently and in order. Uh, and, you know, Paul is talking about an order to things. And so in practice uh, in our church, that means that um, the elders, whoever is leading the service, there is a, a sort of a scriptedness to it. It's not every word is scripted, but there is a sense in which you are called on to speak and then it's somebody else's turn and there's an order to things, uh, which makes a lot of sense. Um, I think that that is really the context to take this uh, last bit at the end, which maybe raised your eyebrows a little bit, um, where Paul says, uh, let the women keep silent in the churches. If there's anything they want to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. Uh, everybody's like, say what? <laughs> um, now, there's a whole topic we could talk about, uh, which is uh, what we call complementarianism, which is men and women having different roles in the church. Uh, but actually, I don't think this passage has anything to do with that. Um, you know, one of the principles I uh, would give you for interpreting Scripture is Scripture interprets Scripture, uh, and we looked at that in saying that the book of Acts gives us context to understanding what this idea of languages is. But there's another principle uh, of interpreting Scripture, which is and generally true of writings of almost anybody, which is don't assume that somebody has forgotten what they said two chapters earlier. Uh, so if somebody is saying something and they say something else that seems to contradict it, maybe give them the credit that they're, you know, they're not contradicting themselves and that you know, uh, something else is going on. So just back in 1 Corinthians 11, uh, Paul gave rules for what should happen when a woman is praying or prophesying in the church. Uh, so he's not now saying, oh, well, three chapters ago I said that, so uh, now that's overturned. Uh, and the whole passage is about praying and prophesying, right? Um, I think he's really getting at this idea of order, uh, and it seems like in this chaotic uh, environment that they had, that they actually had a lot of wives turning to their husbands saying, what is he talking about? Could you explain it to me? And there's sort of this chatter uh, going on of sort of back chatter. Uh, you know, we have to have a little tolerance for that because like, you know, if you've noticed sometimes on Sunday morning we have a lot of kids uh, and they might be turning to their parents and saying, what's going on? We have to be somewhat tolerant of that, but there also is a sense that we need to have good order. Uh, now, Paul uh, grew up as a Jew and in the synagogues, there would have been a very clear order that the women were not chattering uh, during the uh, exposition of the Torah, but he's writing to a Gentile church which it seems very chaotic, and he's essentially saying, you know, as in the synagogues, you know, you should keep order uh, and not have this sort of background chatter uh, that's going on. Now, Paul does have things to say in other parts of Scripture, 
about uh, the ordering of men and women in the church and so on, and I'm, this is a, a sermon about tongues, so I'm not going to talk about that, um, but I actually don't think that this particular passage has anything to do with that at all, uh, other than the generic idea of submission and leadership, um, but I think he's primarily, he's embedding this right in the middle of a, of a passage where he's saying God is not a God of confusion uh, and chaos, uh, but he is a, a God of, of order uh, and harmony. Uh, and so I think he's really getting at simply don't have a lot of back chatter of people asking questions, uh, interrupting, and things like that. In the same way that you don't want to have people standing up and prophesying and interrupting people uh, you know, with their prophecies uh, or all kinds of chaos of other types uh, going on in the church. Uh, so um, that is the overall principle. And again, that's not to say there can't be anything that's unscripted, right? If there's an overall structure to worship, but that doesn't mean like every word is literally like a, a, a set piece. Uh, there's a lot of room for freedom uh, even within that. Uh, and then the final thing I just want to really uh, land on <clears throat> is uh, verses 24 and 25, which I think are really uh, key to the whole passage. He says, if an unbeliever outside enters <clears throat> and you are prophesying, that is, you are speaking God's truth, uh, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, and the secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Uh, now, I don't think he's saying, like, literally every time you meet, this is going to happen. Uh, but he is saying uh, that this is sort of what worship can look like. Uh, and I think one of the biggest take-homes from this uh, for, for us is that uh, there is a place in the church for simply proclaiming God's truth uh, without argument. Uh, and if you know me, you know I love apologetics, and I'm often giving persuasive arguments for this or that, and there is a place for that, but there's also a place for simply saying, God says this, I declare to you on the authority of Scripture, thus it is. Uh, and um, sometimes we can err in being trying to be so persuasive that we no longer simply proclaim, God says, and you need to listen. Uh, and so, when Paul is talking here about the prophesying, he's talking about the fact that there is something in our hearts that directly perceives the authority of God when God's word is preached and proclaimed. And even if you're not preaching up here, you should think to yourself, when I speak scripture to somebody else, I'm convicting them, uh, I'm speaking to their heart. Uh, and I remember years ago, uh, someone uh, really emphasizing this in an evangelism program, it's very easy to talk to people and um, give lots of reasons and arguments and not actually ever quote scripture. But try to actually work into your conversation literal quotes of scripture because you will be convicting the hearts of those people you're talking to, even if they don't admit it. God's word never goes out void. Uh, when you speak his words verbatim, it has a power to it that you don't have to argue for. Uh, you can simply speak it and assume that people's hearts will resonate with it and they will hear it. Uh, and so um, oftentimes you will actually really bless people more than you think by quoting scripture uh, and, and getting it right, making sure you know it. <laughs> um, or if you don't know it, actually pulling out a Bible or a 
a phone Bible, uh, and saying, let's look at this together. Uh, but uh, be aware there really is power in the proclamation of Scripture, even with that argument. Uh, and similarly, in evangelism, oftentimes it's very valuable. Just get people to read the Scriptures, even if they have no opinion about whether the Scriptures are true or not. Uh, a lot of times we might spend energy saying, well, I have to convince this person that the Bible is inspired before they actually read it. And that's actually not necessary. Our hearts know better. Uh, so oftentimes you can say, just start reading, and we'll keep talking about all the apologetic stuff, but uh, let, let the Scripture simply speak to you. Uh, and I think that Paul is saying here that uh, there is something about the Word of God that, as he says here, convicts us, calls us to account, and discloses the secrets of our heart. Uh, in the proclamation of Scripture in a prophetic way. And so uh, he's saying that not just for those up front, but for every believer. He's saying when you all are prophesying, uh, he will hear those words and be convicted. So let's uh, take that as encouragement uh, to speak to one another uh, the words of God. Let's pray.